Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad, rubber-coated hardware for a better fit, and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. The following is a production of the Motor Racing Network, the voice of NASCAR. Dale Jarrett is going to win the Daytona 500. So nobody was talking. It was all in my hands as to what I needed to do. Wallace spins. Wallace's car goes on its nose. It went in the air, hit the ground, then flew back up, and I flew over the start-finish line. The Motor Racing Network presents the 1993 season, 25 years later. Mark Martin riding an unbelievable winning streak. I didn't realize when I won it because we were on such a roll. It was 10 years or 15 probably before I realized that I had won the Southern 500. The race winner, Rusty Wallace, and the championship driver, Dale Earnhardt, each carrying flags, honoring their fallen friends, Alan Kulwicki and Davey Allison. Davey and Alan Kulwicki were on everybody's mind all year long, right to the very end. And we always had those flags in our truck. From the Motor Racing Network studios in Concord, North Carolina, here is your host, Susie Armstrong. Thank you for joining us for part five of MRN Presents the 1993 season, 25 years later. In this episode, we'll break down the all-star race and Coca-Cola 600 at Charlotte Motor Speedway. We'll relive Dale Earnhardt's win at Dover and Kyle Petty's eventful victory at Pocono Raceway. Following the Western Swing, the trip back from the Pacific Coast was a long one for many, especially Mark Martin. A 40th place finish at Sears Point Raceway was the last straw for the NASCAR veteran, and some of the Valvoline Ford crew members refer to the Tuesday after Sears Point as Black Tuesday. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, a, t- it was a tough time, you know, and I had been with Jack and I'd been through a lot of frustrations with engines and and with cutting our teeth, you know, building from scratch. Really the thing that just really rubbed me the wrong way was is that, you know, I still was a, a lot, a very involved shop guy as far, you know, I had uh, my Xfinity car uh, myself. Uh, I hung the bodies on that car the way I wanted. I did everything the way I wanted on that car, just like I did for all my ASA cars or whatever. And we had stunning success with that with that Bush car or Xfinity car, Win Dixie car. And I wanted to have the freedom to have Cup cars the way I wanted them as well. There was a resistance before I got to NASCAR, and there was a resistance when I got to NASCAR for drivers having input on NASCAR teams. And that was one of my skepticisms of, (laughs) I actually told Waddell Wilson that I wasn't interested in driving the 28 car. When he called me in 1981, I ran my own car. I sat on two poles and had a top five finish, led races and stuff with my own car and my ASA team. And the first race I went to, I'd never even been in the pits or garage of a NASCAR race. And I didn't hire anybody from NASCAR to help me. And I was on track to do what Alan did, which was not let a established NASCAR team who really would rather have Richard Petty, Bobby Allison, or Darrell Waltrip 
or you know Buddy Baker or Dave or you know what those guys Kale drive for them than have a young guy anyway and they sure weren't going to let a young guy come in and tell them what they wanted in the race cars because they knew better so that was a little bit I still fought that even though I had a tremendous relationship with Steve Mill one of the smartest people I ever worked with one of the uh, I like I like Steve Mill a lot and uh, and all but you know it was still I was still having trouble you know implementing some of the things that I, I would have liked to have implemented in race cars that I saw and so that was what that was about. After Black Tuesday, we rocketed to sort of the top of the class. The next stop for the Cup Series was Charlotte Motor Speedway for the ninth annual Winston All-Star Race. The day started with the Winston Open, a 50-lap sprint for drivers lacking a previous season victory, with the top five from the Open advancing to the main event later that evening. Jeff Gordon won the pole for the preliminary event and led the first 22 laps until losing control of his DuPont Chevrolet. Trouble in turn four. The leader is into the wall. Jeff Gordon's car backs hard into the outside wall in the middle of turns three and four. comes sliding down in a plume of smoke on the safety apron of the racetrack. Oh, yeah, I lost it. Yeah, I completely lost it. Oh, we tore up a lot of race cars in 1993. Uh, Ravenham could give you the exact count of the clips. I'm sure Rick Hendrick probably could, too, because it cost him a lot of money that year. But, yeah, again, we, we there were several tracks where we were very fast and and certainly should have finished better than what we did. And sometimes I, it was just my inexperience of pushing the car a little bit too hard and, and not backing. You, you think you're backing off. Uh, and, and and then you wreck like I did in, in the Winston Open. So there were some bumps going into turn three, and I felt the car start getting pretty chattery over them, and, and, but I was catching it, catching it, catching it, and the next time I went in there, I didn't catch it anymore. And and so, you know, th- those were val- valuable lessons to, to learn, costly, but but valuable for, for the future, certainly for the second half of the season and, and of course, 94. Jeff Gordon's crew chief, Ray Everham. Man, we were flying. We were flying. And, and you know, he didn't want to say anything. He said he was a little bit loose. And I remember watching the, the monitor and just checking out and, and thinking, oh, that, that must be a replay from something because, it, you know, here's the car going backwards into the wall, all crashed up, and he ain't said a word. Uh, but, no, he was, just, he was just flying. You know, um, that's what was really cool about Jeff Gordon, that, that pure innocence. And I'm just going to hold this thing down and go as fast as I can go every lap all the time. And he was loose getting into three, and, and, and he was always like, oh, I got it, I got it, I got it. Well, <laughs> that one he didn't have uh, and backed it in the fence. So it was, uh, again, you know, that those were the things that I think made Jeff Gordon great because everybody knew as soon as he figured that out, he was going to be wicked fast, and he was. At the end of 50 circuits, it was Sterling Marlin in victory lane for the Winston Open. It'll be a single-file run to the finish. Sterling Marlin makes it into the Winston. So does Ken Schrader, Brett Bodine, Michael Waltrip, and Rick Mash. Those five will start in position 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. After the checkers fell for the Open, the field was set for the Winston All-Star Race. The format consisted of three segments, the first two 30 laps in length with a 10-lap dash to the finish. Dale Earnhardt and Mark Martin lingered around the front for most of the clash, and when it came down to the final segment, Martin took the lead on the restart with Earnhardt close behind. Rick Bass slips just a bit. Mark Martin dives to the inside. Martin duels with Earnhardt, and Martin gets by to take the 
take the lead. A drag race down the back straightaway as Earnhardt tries to stay on the outside as Rick Mass gets shuffled back to seventh, eighth in line. Martin has the lead into three. Earnhardt runs in hard right up on his back bumper. He'll look to the outside off of four. Side by side for third, Irvin and Schrader. One lap down, nine laps remain to settle it for $200,000. With a lap to go, Terry Labonte and Bill Elliott brought out the caution. One car spins in the middle of the turn. Terry Labonte spins, collects Bill Elliott ever so lightly. Everyone else takes evasive action as Labonte's car slides to the inside. And caution comes onto the speedway. Now these laps under caution do not count. Remember the caution laps in the final 10 lap segment will not count. The race came down to a green-white checkered finish, but Dale Earnhardt jumped the restart. Here's the pace car pulling off the banking up in turn number four. They waste no time in coming off that corner and Dale Earnhardt grabs the lead before they ever get to the start finish line and Earnhardt is off and running. The battle now is for second place as they go down into turn one. And now they're going to display the yellow flag here as NASCAR is going to take a close look at that restart. They are not racing back to the flag. They are going to restart the race again. Earnhardt's crew chief, Andy Petrie. So it happens. Dale does it, I'm thinking, on purpose to see if he can get away with it. And if he didn't, I think it was just hoping it would rattle Mark because Mark had us covered. He was gone. I mean, we had a caution that, that, that came, you know, out is the reason that we had that restart. And uh, we, you know, we didn't really have anything for him, but we always get to change tires right. And then, and then Dale gets to be Dale, do his thing, and he messes with Mark enough uh, and jumps that start. And then everybody is just livid that they don't put him in the back. You know, all the other crew chiefs are complaining, you know, that they should have penalized us and put us in the back. And they just re-racked him again and said, oh, we're going to start over. And I think it just rattled Mark so much that he just didn't, with the green, basically a green-white checker finish, he didn't have time to recover. They come to the entrance of turn number three for the final time. Earnhardt's car hugs the bottom of the racetrack, slides up halfway through the corner. Martin digs down to the bottom of the corner to try and get alongside. It's not going to work. Dale Earnhardt will become the first three-time winner of the Winston. Earnhardt takes home $200,000. Roush Racing's Mark Martin. I didn't really have a problem with that. When people say what they think. Uh, some people may have think he got in my head. The bottom line is this. I told you I run my cars loose. It was 1993, and not everybody in the world understood the aero stuff that much. But a car that is free, the fastest car on the racetrack that is free, and you stick a car on the outside of them in turn three, going into turn three when it's already free, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to turn sideways and wipe out the field. And that's, I knew I had, you know, I had that experience. So I didn't get clear of Dale on the third restart. It was a double file restart. And as you see, the outside works pretty damn good on double file restarts on racetracks, especially where arrow comes into play. So I, Dale managed on the third, on the third try of the restart to stay on my quarter panel. And I couldn't keep the back from passing the front in turn three. I didn't want, so he cleared me, and I didn't have enough time. I, you know, I did have the fastest car, and I didn't have enough time to set him up and, and get the pass done back. So he beat me. Once again, there, there's only another example of seven times out of ten when Dale Earnhardt won, he didn't have the fastest car, and he didn't have the fastest car in that race, but he won. And um, that was one of Dale Earnhardt's MOs. And, yeah, that pissed you off. Who, who likes getting out drove? Hard to like it when you just got yourself out drove, but, uh, but he, 
he did it a lot. Well, I'll tell you one thing. This is a happy man, I'll tell you that. It's a happy, it's tell a happy us, race team right here. <laughs> tell us about the pass. Well, I, I got a little angel zone marked on that one restart, and they called me down for it. And we, we got on that next restart there, and I just restarted with him. And we ran him on the outside. I said, heck, I'll just raise him on the outside see what he's got. And uh, the only way this car got a little loose getting three or what, but I got around him and got on in front of him. And I don't know how we held him off. He's been stronger, stronger off the corners than we have. And uh, I don't know, we was just lucky to beat him. The week after the Winston All-Star Race, Ricky Rudd announced that he would be leaving Hendrick Motorsports at the end of the season to start his own operation in 1994. Well, it, it was a big decision because I'd gone down that road. That's how I started originally was with our family-run operation. And it, it was tough. It wasn't anything easy about it. Of course, we didn't. We had very little bit of money, uh, and everybody put in a, a ton of hard work. So I wasn't totally new to being involved sort of on the ownership side. I knew, I knew the struggles that were going to come with that, but I also knew it was the right opportunity for me at that time. Uh, looking back, hindsight, I wish I could change things a little bit. But at that particular time, Rick was involved with his race teams, but it's not as much as he, nothing like he is today. Back then, he was still building his car empire, and his, his, you know, most of his opportunities and times were taken with, uh, with opening new dealerships. So it was, uh, we, we got to see Rick, but not, not as much as we had liked to, because things always seemed to work better when Rick was at the racetrack. So, I, I, you know, that was kind of tough, him not being there. Uh, at that time, like he like he probably needed to be, but again, uh, his empire uh, in the car business wouldn't have uh, become what it is today had he done that. Uh, so that was tough because I, you know, I had a, a I had a lot of good things at Hendricks I liked, but what I saw in the future is tied at that same time was also uh, not happy with what was, was happening. We were we were running very well. Don't don't get me wrong, but we were blowing a lot of engines that year, and that was just uh, unlike a Hendricks organization broke quite a few engines that year. So, you know, they weren't very happy. So the opportunity kind of presented itself to, you know, to start our own team. And, and at that time, I was probably in my 30s somewhere. But looking at the future, uh, that was sort of before the 18-year-olds were coming in. Um, so looking at that, uh, it, it made a lot of sense to probably uh, look at going out on my own, mainly just not so much from the driver's standpoint, but from the, the point that once I stepped out of the driver's seat, I would have still have an involvement with the race team. After a poor showing in the Winston Open, Bobby Labonte remembers the week before the 600 as a turning point in his Bill Davis racing operation. You know, of course, you know, like I said, I already heard all the, you know, he can't drive these cars, can't drive this, can't do this. So, so anyway, so the week between, the week between the All-Star race and the Coke 600, which we had a few days, which wasn't much, we had just a few days. And I remember going to... Um, Terry drove for Billy Hagen. So his race shop was literally 500 yards from Bill Davis's shop, just right down the street. So I, I can probably say this now because nobody get in trouble, but I went over there one night, Pete Wright and I, because I used to work there, so I knew all the stuff, you know. So um, I went over there with a six-foot straight edge, and Pete Wright helped me measure some stuff. So I measured from the frame rail up and long story short was I went back over to to Bill's shop and we put big washers in uh, in the where the lower control arms mount welded them up redrilled the holes made the a-frames and people understand this people understand it but we reconfigured the front end suspension on it right so we did that I got two spindles from somebody I borrowed them I think probably from or stole them off the shelf over there at Hagen and put them on the front of the car so we set the car up we go to Charlotte for the Coke 600. 
and it's like, okay, we we had to, we had to end up changing the right front spring, 800 pounds, almost a thousand pounds, to do the same thing it did with the week before. And you know, of course, back in that day, you know, you don't know everything you know today, and it's like we we did that. And we did a few other things. We worked on it. We just had, you know, I mean, you just go throughout practice and before qualifying. And I think I qualified eighth and ran the race. And that's the same car, same driver, same everything from the weekend before. Ran that race the next week or that weekend, that Sunday, Coke 600. And at lap at the 500 mile mark, if the race had been over at 500 miles, I think I was running second. Dale Jarrett was first, I was second. We got a lap on the field somehow or another. And, um, through pit stops and we caught a caution and blah 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 so i wasn't fast enough to to hold everybody off but i was fast enough to hang with those guys and so anyway i think i ended up finishing sixth the coca-cola 600 at charlotte motor speedway was and still remains to be the longest race of the year as the marathon clash unfolded nascar penalized dale earnhardt for rough driving earnhardt's crew chief andy petrie well somehow we wound up a lap down. I, I can't remember how we did, but so we we need a caution to get our lap back. We're fast. We you know we we'd won the the Winston All Star race the week before. Had a great car in the 600. Um, things were really going our way, but we got down a lap, so we need a caution, and it did come out when Greg Sachs spun out, and he just happened to be right in front of Dale. And when I say right in front, I mean within an inch. <laughs> so they they determined that it was less than an inch that he actually pushed him around and so they penalized him and held him the lap that we would have gained back by because you know we were actually just in front of the leader and we needed the caution to come around so they put us back a lap down i thought richard childress was going to kill our official in the pits seriously i mean he was so mad and so i get i get down off the box and i go grab richard i said richard richard calm down i said we're still gonna win (laughs) don't worry about it we've got the best car just let it go. Don't don't dig us a bigger hole here. So, you know, we did go back and start a lap down. We got the lap back. I don't remember. I think we actually drove around under green and uh, ended up coming back and winning that 600. It was it was really fun to win it that way. Hendrick Motorsports driver Jeff Gordon finished second in the epic contest. His crew chief Ray Everham recalls the strategy used to score the runner-up honors. It was really cool, but I, you know that's another one of those ones where. Um, Andy Petrie and I are really good friends, and uh, actually Andy Petrie put Jeff and I together, but Andy was crew chief for Dale Earnhardt that then had taken uh, time over, and, and we were we were pretty much just following them, what they were doing, and there at the end, I think Ernie Irvin might have been leading, caution with, I don't know, six, seven laps ago, we all shot down pit road, took tires, and uh, Jeff and Earnhardt just blasted up through there, and again, had Jeff had and I had a little bit more experience, might have been different, but uh, we came back the next year. And, and won that race so it was uh, it, it, I, I will never forget that you know I'm, I'm like man I'm watching Andy what's he gonna do what's he gonna do he, he brings Earnhardt down pit road puts four tires on him I'm like that's what we're doing boys come on a five-time Charlotte Motor Speedway winner Gordon has always been a fan of the mile and a half layout I love Charlotte right from the beginning from the first time I ever raced there I, I a lot of people don't know this I raced in 1990 there and the rate qualifying rained out I was driving for uh, Hugh Connerty, the Outback Steakhouse car that, that some people know about now uh, with Steve Barkdahl and those guys. Andy Petrie helped us uh, kind of put that together. Ray Everham was the crew chief. Qualifying rained out. We were pretty quick, but it rained out, so we had to run what they called what the hooligan race, whatever they called it back then. And uh, and we were running good enough to transfer, and, and 
I can't remember. I, I, something happened. I didn't get a good run off of four, went down into one, and, and of all people, Randy Baker, who was one of my instructors at Buck Baker, um, goes inside of me, and I thought I was clear, and I turned down and, and, and come across his nose and spun out wreck. Um, but but I liked it from the first time I tested there, and then in Bush Grand National, I won two races there in you know 1992 for Bill Davis, won both races there. And then, you know, went in there in my cup career, and, and I just always liked it. It was a great track. Team Penske's Rusty Wallace continued to suffer from a broken wrist. And just as it was two weeks prior at Sears Point, the infirmity would be a hindrance. And we're running, and we actually had a pretty good car in the Coca-Cola 600. And I remember coming off of turn two, and I got loose off of turn two. And I was trying to save the car, which under normal circumstances, I could have saved the car. But what happens, I started back steering and my brace got jammed in the steering wheel because I was having to drive the car stiff-handed. I couldn't have any wrist action. So I was actually moving my entire left arm up and down to turn the car. And when I had a back steer and then come back at it, my elbow got in the bottom of my hip around my belt and jammed up the bottom of the steering wheel and I couldn't correct the car enough and I ended up spinning the car. And when I spun the car, it got all the way down to the track, and I thought I was going to save it. And at the last little bit, it got into the inside wall, tore the car up, and I'm out of the race. So now here's two races. This brace has killed me and uh, killed my finishes. The next stop for the Cup Series teams was Dover Downs International Speedway. Good afternoon, everyone, from the Dover Downs International Speedway. Well, we're under kind of some cloudy skies, but the weather's been real great. They're forecasting a lot of sunshine as the afternoon goes by, but it's very cool, unusually cool here at Dover this afternoon, and we're all set for a good one. For Rusty Wallace, poor finishes at Sears Point in Charlotte had the team down, but not out. I was interviewing Rusty Wallace, uh, I guess it was yesterday morning. Some guy came along, maybe it was Friday morning. And a fella came along and said, well, Rusty, you've lost 235 points now to Dale Earnhardt in the last three weeks. Earnhardt's in front by nearly 130. He's pulling away, and this guy said, uh, this, this deal's all over now. You're not going to get back and win the championship. And I said, wait a second. Then Rusty jumped in. That's, that's pretty style words you just said. Well, they better get their damn record book out and look, because I had a 120-point lead going on this, on this three-car going into Talladega, okay? And I, 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 beat up, I beat up on it pretty hard, you know. I won three in a row and four total and led to most laps and all that stuff. And so if they want to do it, get their money out, and I'm going to win all their cash from them. Wallace was running well in the Budweiser 500, leading 85 laps. But a late race tangle with Mark Martin ended the day for the third race in a row. Here they come through the corner. Mark Martin inside. He and Rusty Wallace get together. They both slide away. Rusty spins. Mark Martin pulls away. Rusty Wallace spins. Oh, and here comes Jimmy Hensley. He'll back into the car. Here comes Jeff Bodine, and he will slide hard into Rusty Wallace in the driver's side of the automobile. Caution on the speedway. Rusty Wallace walking away from the infield care center. Rusty, we're glad you're okay. What happened? I guess Mark got it. I rolled out of gas, let Mark get along underneath me because my car was pushing a little bit. He got underneath me and just drove right up and got just <laughs> wrecked me. I don't know what caused it. I mean, his car might have got loose or pushed or something, but something weird happened. And uh, Mark's not that type of guy, so it must have something happened with the car. Roush Racing's Mark Martin. I make mistakes. I race hard, and I made mistakes. That day, uh, I let my race car get away from me, and he happened to be on the outside of me. Well, you know, I had no problem, man. Hey, I'm sorry. I, that was me. That's on me. I messed up. 
And I know, you know, I saw, I watched his interview. I don't know what happened to Mark. He ain't like that. I don't know. You know, he didn't know. I, I hadn't talked to him yet, you know. And, uh, yeah, man, it was on me. It was hard racing. Something, you know, if you never, ever, ever make a mistake, you ain't raced hard enough. Wallace's crew chief, Buddy Parrott, recalls that spirits remained high in spite of the unfortunate luck. Man, I'll tell you what, it took a lot, a lot of cases of Miller Genuine Draft. <laughs> and some good partying. No, uh, you know, the guys were... I never had to worry about them. They loved it, and uh, and the pit stops proved it. They wanted to be the best, and even though they knew we were we were doing some things back then to win races, and some bit us and some didn't. We won ten races, and uh, but we were one of the first ones to start low air pressures and things like that. And we we blew the sidewalls out of tires and things, but but, uh, but anyway. We had a we had a good time. Uh, I cannot ever tell you that that uh, that when when we laid the tools down and we went to the bar, we all had a good time. Cause what else, man? You got a Miller Genuine Draft sponsor. Most of the time we didn't drink that stuff. <laughs> As the checkers flew in the first state of Delaware, Dale Earnhardt crossed the stripe at the front of the field, winning his second race in a row. Dale Earnhardt has been on a roll for the last few weeks, and it looks like it's going to continue as he comes through turns three and four. Dale Jarrett closes within four car lengths, and Earnhardt will win the Budweiser 500. And i tell you what, the pace is really fast today, and it was really hard on tires today. We really put them through the paces, and Goodyear's tires came through today. Uh, the, you know, Richard and the guys did a good job with his engine. Uh, the, Andy and all the guys did a good job with the chassis. We tuned on it all week, get here in practice. The car just, get, you know, stayed consistent all day. Was able to get our laps back with a good running race car. And I'll tell you what, I drove the heck out of this thing today. <laughs> Pocono Raceway hosted the 13th race on the 1993 schedule, the Champion Spark Plug 500. Kyle Petty remembers the weekend starting slow as his car turned in some rather sluggish practice laps. Okay, I'll tell you about this. This is a funny story. Um, this is a crazy story. So on Saturday, on, on Saturday, we'd already, I think we'd broken a couple of engines up there. Um, we only had one engine left and in the truck. And, um, so we put it in, and we run, and we we thought we were decent. You know what I mean? We thought we were pretty good. But um, we run. Uh, we went out to run the last practice, and Jimmy Spencer came down to Robin and I, and we were standing there, and Travis Travis Carter was standing there, and Jimmy's like, uh, man, that thing's a turd, dude. That thing is terrible. I'm running all over you at the end of the straightaways. You know what I mean? He's like, I don't know what y'all are going to do. And I'm like, yeah, you know, we're we're good, though. We're good through the corners. You know, I can make some time. And he's like, yeah, but there ain't but three corners. There's there long straightaways. And, you know, Pocono is forever, especially that front stretch. And he's like, man, just pull over when we lap you tomorrow. And I said, okay, man. So they dropped the green flag. And once the tires got a little heat in them and everybody kind of slowed down, I guess we were slow enough that we were still fast. And I know that's a stupid saying, but sometimes you got to go slow to go fast. Um, and ended up winning the thing and really winning the thing in big fashion because we, we just ran away with it. Um, and then when the race was over with, we'd been on a motorcycle trip, Robin and uh, myself and uh, Michael Dranus and Eddie Gossage, and I circled back down pit road and they handed me a video camera. 
So when I got out of the car, I filmed everybody in Victory Lane with my video camera. Instead of them taking pictures of me, uh, I filmed them with my video camera. So that was a lot of fun. That, listen, this is when racing was fun. I don't know if people remember that because I haven't seen that lately. But this is when racing was fun. Talk about gorgeous weather. We have absolutely had three days that have been unreal here in the Pocono Mountains. Petty quickly became the class of the field, leading 148 of the 200 laps. While the third-generation driver was out front, a fan ran onto the track directly in the path of his mellow yellow Pontiac. Yeah, it, here's here's they, Davey and I were racing. And Davey was behind me, and, and we came off the corner, and there's a guy standing in the middle of the racetrack. And, and listen, let's be honest, it was not unusual to see stuff in the middle of the racetrack at Pocono during that period of time. Whether it was groundhogs, whether it was deer, it didn't make any difference. I mean, we can go back in time. There were plenty of cautions for wildlife on the racetrack. But there's a guy standing in the middle of the racetrack. And I wave with one hand, with my right hand, and then realize Davey's still coming. And I stick my left arm as far as I can out the window, and I wave with it. And Davey shoots to the inside, but he slows down. And here's this guy. And this guy's got a 50-50 shot at this time. If he, if he runs to the wall, he's going to live. If he tries to make it back to the infield, it's not going to work for him. You know what I mean? Because Davey and I have got the two inside lanes covered. And um, I, I don't think that this guy realized that the closure rate of 150 miles an hour, it's not like stepping off the curb when a car is coming down the street at 35. You know what I mean? And I think he there was some alcohol involved, so he wasn't in top form at that time anyhow but he, he ran and he ran to the right and they said he went over the fence and that's the last time I heard about him until I read about him in the paper uh, a little bit so that was that was pretty cool but that was absolutely the weirdest thing Davey and I laughed I, I mean for for a couple weeks after that we would laugh everywhere we go about people, somebody being in the race think somebody's going to run out in the middle of this one no no only at Pocono, man. Davey Allison's crew chief, Larry McReynolds, remembers the resulting radio chatter. Davey normally gave me a play-by-play description of stuff that was going on around the racetrack. Uh, it was short and simple, and he said, a fan just ran across the racetrack. Well, Davey had a way of screwing with me in many ways. And, and nine out of ten times, I didn't put too much stock in what he was telling me, unless it was something to do with the race car. An example I'm going to give you, let's go back to 1991. I'd been with Davey in the 28 car for about two months, and we had been fast everywhere we'd been. First race together, we finished second at Darlington. I think we finished top five at Bristol, top five at Wilkesboro. We just had done everything but found victory lane. Now, we won the all-star race, pretty much just annihilated them. But I still, it's like, I want to win a points race. I've been here for over two months. This thing's fast every week. I want to win a points race. Well, the next week, obviously, was the Coca-Cola 600, and we had qualified well up inside the top ten and just led that thing all day long. And I tell people all the time, especially as a crew chief back then, the Coca-Cola 600 was nerve-wracking. It's the longest race we run by 100 miles, 400 laps, 600 miles. And you almost know when you get to that final 100 miles that you're kind of on borrowed time. And, you know, is the engine going to make it? Is the running gear going to make it? Is the driver going to fall out of the seat? All these things are going through your mind. So we get into the latter part of this race, and, and we have no more pit stops to make. And Davey is saying little to nothing on the radio, and all I'm doing is giving him 
the laps to go, 40 to go, 35 to go, in an interval back to second, which we were about a half a lap ahead, and ironically, Dale Earnhardt Sr. in the three car was running second. Well, Davey hadn't said nothing probably for 20 laps, and we got down near 20 to go, and he said, Larry Mack, you'll never believe what's going on. And my heart just got lodged up in my throat. I said, well, here it is. This is what I've been anticipating. We got a tire going down, engines going sour, gears burning up. And it's like I said, what, what, what's going on? He said, every time I come off turn two and I look over toward the infield, there's this Earnhardt fan hanging through the fence, flipping me off with both hands. I said, Davey, I sure am glad you shared that with me. I'm not sure I could have made it through the day without getting that information from you. So I guess I go back to the fan running across the track at Pocono. When he told me that under green racing, I said, sure, right, 10-4, and just kind of wrote it off. But I did find out later it really did happen. With 500 miles in the books, Kyle Petty was sitting in victory lane for the first time in 1993. Kyle Petty's black and Dayglo Pontiac shuffles off the second corner, down the short straightaway, heading into turn number three. Dale Earnhardt about 20 car lengths ahead. Here comes Petty into the third corner, sticks it right down to the bottom of the racetrack. Kyle Petty slips off turn three, back to the checkered flag. It's been 14 races since last he visited victory lane at Rockingham late last year. And for the first time ever, Kyle Petty will win here at Pocono International Raceway. You had an awful good car today, an awful good run. Do you have any problems? I tell you what, uh, I can't say enough about these guys. They built a great car that drove perfect all day long. We made a couple of adjustments, talked to Robin, and, and we, they made some air adjustments and some things, and the motor was incredible. It pulled up off the corner like you wouldn't believe. So, you know, it was just a good day all the way around. After we won that race, Terry Lace, um, with, with, with GM, wanted that car to come to GM to the wind tunnel. Uh, as I said before, we were getting more and more, everybody was getting more and more into the aero stuff. So we took that car to the wind tunnel. And Terry called called back down after he looked at all the numbers, and he called Robin and, and Felix and all of us, and he said, don't ever, ever send a piece of crap like that to our wind tunnel again. That is the worst car we have ever had up here to date. And in 1993, that was the worst car they had ever seen. And he said, as a matter of fact, I'm not sure that's the car. I don't believe that that's the car y'all race there. I think y'all sent another car. And, and I think they believed that we... It was a bait and switch, you know what I mean? But it wasn't. That's the car we won with. And according to Terry, it had the most drag, the least amount of downforce. It was just a piece of junk. Um, And somehow it won a race. The win was Petty's seventh of his career and would be his sole victory in 93. Join us next week on MRN Presents the 1993 season, 25 years later. We'll revisit the inaugural clash at New Hampshire Motor Speedway and recall how Rusty Wallace got his season back on track. Winning a race at any track that's brand new to the circuit and being the inaugural winner is absolutely huge. And that race right there, that was like you hit a reset button for me, and that was the beginning of the year again. Until then, I'm Susie Armstrong. Have a great week. Today's program was a presentation of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and Daytona Beach, Florida. The 1993 season, 25 years later, was written and produced by Rich Culbrick. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network.
Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical, underage sale prohibited. Introducing Zone Nicotine Pouches, the perfect balance of unparalleled comfort, longer-lasting flavor, and nicotine that satisfies. Whether you're zoning in during the race or zoning out after a tough day at work, Zone gets you there faster and keeps you there longer. Available in seven flavors and in six and nine milligram strengths. Find Zone at zonepouches.com and retailers near you. Own your Zone with Zone Nicotine Pouches.